Welcome to ED GovCast. My name is Gareth Davis, and with me today is Lee Barneycott. We're both EM consultants at HHFT, and we've decided to launch a podcast called ED GovCast. But what is it all about, Lee? Well, Gareth, we know that it's not always that easy to get to the ED governance meetings. A lot of content is covered in the governance meetings, and we want to make sure that everyone in our team is able to access the information that's covered there in the easiest format possible. We hope by launching a podcast, it will make it easier for everybody in the team to understand what's been going on and learn from our governance reporting processes. Perfect. So today, we're going to cover the recent clinical governance meeting. So what was in that meeting, Lee? Well, we've got some key learning points to cover from the Datex incident reporting processes, and we've got some excellent cases that were presented to talk through. Firstly, there was an unusual presentation of Lyme disease, hokum presenting as an unusual cause of chest pain, and finally, a great case of anaphylaxis. We'll wrap things up with some updates from the Paediatric Emergency Medicine Service. Sounds incredible. So, Gareth, why is governance important? Well, that's a great question, Lee, but I tell you what, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to hand over to my esteemed colleague, Sarah Noble, who always tells us what governance is at the start of every meeting. So here is a clip from her yesterday. Governance is about making sure we're always learning and improving. Governance always sounds boring, but it's not. It's about creating an environment where we can provide excellent patient care. Um, And so it sort of incorporates absolutely everything about how we work in the emergency departments. They're not wishing to take over the world, but it's everything about how we make um, good environments for delivering patient care. If we want to create this environment, then we have to understand where we're up to in terms of the data. So how are we doing? Then if we're not doing quite so well in some areas, um, maybe the data is telling us that, then we need to take some action. Um, And then we need to be able to communicate effectively, which is the hardest thing. But things like top 10 tips and governance learning boards, um, really important uh, for communicating all of that. And then finally, enabling and empowering the workforce. So um, it's our belief as a team, um, multidisciplinary team across our departments, that everybody should be able to get involved in improvement. Um, And if you don't feel that's the case, then come and talk to us because we want to help you feel that, um, no matter what your role is. So the Datex system is the system that our trust uses to capture important information that's reported relating to potential incidents uh, that have happened in the department. This is a, a key way that all of us as clinicians can report issues as and when they arise. Datex is are then reviewed by senior members of the emergency medicine team. And as you'll already know, they're then reported at the governance meetings. So Gareth, what did the Datex's this month show us? So yesterday in the meeting, um, our colleague Jake Brown actually did a really good job of summarising all the date tixes. Um, Now, you'd be reassured that the majority of these date tixes were uh, scaled as low-harm events. However, the important themes that were picked up were, unfortunately, quite a few episodes of violence, which was highlighted quite significantly by Jake Oh, thanks for that, Gareth. Well, it's great to hear that there were lots of cases reported because we know that highly performing services um, have quite high levels of incident reporting. And it's reassuring to hear that most of those incidents were low harm. 
It's pretty sad to hear that there are a number of cases there of violence and aggression towards staff members. So what are we doing about that as a service, Gareth? Well, what we need to do um, is obviously escalate early. So involve senior members of staff, involve uh, the senior sisters, involve the consultants, um, specifically the EPIC on shift. Um, We do have a security team available. Now, unfortunately, they're always immediately available, but they are there to help us. And of course, the police as well. Yeah, I think that we should never underestimate the uh, importance of personal safety, ensuring that you keep good space around patients, that you remain between the door and the patient uh, so that you can escape easily if needed and always call for additional help, as you you said, Gareth. I know that Jake also spoke about episodes of patients absconding from the department, often mental health patients, and that's something that we recently picked up with our operational team, uh, and I know that they're looking at the moment to costing uh, a more secure closing mechanism for the door into the trolleys area. So there is some work going on in the background to try and resolve that. Absolutely. So before we finish this segment, I just wanted to briefly um, let you listen to a a brief little clip of, of Jake Brown yesterday speaking. So you know, the summary is that um, in June we had 376 datexes, um, which were reasonably split between the two sites. Um, the important thing is that none of them were severe harm, which is lovely to hear. Um, a lot, the majority, vast majority, were no harm. Uh, and we had three moderate harms and 64 low harms. So the next segment of the meeting we're going to cover was actually my favourite, the the clinical cases. So every month we like to include a few clinical cases where we can uh, learn something from. So yesterday we had two of our doctors, Hagar Hassan and Mohammed Ima. Hagar, discuss a really interesting presentation of Lyme disease. Absolutely. So this patient actually presented with um, a bilateral facial nerve palsy, something that I've never seen. How about you, Lee? No, I've never seen that, Gareth. Um, but it turned out to be a case of Lyme disease. Um, so Lyme disease is one of those things that we may or may not see occasionally in the emergency department. What what have you learned recently from that, Lee? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that is often asked about in exams, isn't it? And and it is talked about as a thing in this area because of the new forest. Uh, it often comes from uh, well, it comes from tick bites, often carried by animals such as deer and there are quite a few of them uh, around this area so uh, nice put out some excellent guidance in their cks format uh, to describe the management of lyme disease if if you suspect lyme disease and you see a patient with erythema migrans do you remember that gareth erythema migrans oh, the old target lesion that's the one yeah the migrating rash if you see that uh, then you can diagnose lyme disease and nice recommend that you start antibiotics If you suspect Lyme disease, but that rash is not present, then you need to go for the old ELISA test. The old ELISA test. Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, that was fascinating. So next clinical case that we had was a case of a young man presenting with chest pain and a very abnormal ECG. Now on the ECG was a lot of uh, T-wave inversion, uh, which Mohammed explained to us was pathological in that age group and led to a diagnosis of hokum. Gee, Gareth, I've got that ECG in front of me, and those T-waves do not look healthy. <laughs> Absolutely not. I wouldn't want those T-waves on my ECG. So what did Mo tell us about how he managed this case? Well, certainly the diagnosis wasn't 
straightforward and the ECG wasn't the gold standard test for this disease, but they started off with a quick differential diagnosis, which included things like myocarditis or infective endocarditis, of course, hokum and other things, for example, Wellen syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Uh Significant diagnoses there and uh, uh, definitely the sorts of things that would be covered in the uh, the EPIC ECG course. Oh, yes. Quick link there to uh, our colleague, Hesham Ibrahim. Yeah, if you've not done that course before, I would absolutely advocate for it. It's a fantastic course and all of this sort of stuff is covered. Anyhow, getting back to the case, uh, so I can see that an echo was done and then there was a discussion with cardiology. Uh, what did the cardiologist decide needed to happen with this patient? Well, they were actually quite helpful. Um, so they suggested admission um, for an inpatient echo and ultimately a cardiac MRI, which diagnosed the hokum. What is hokum? Hokum? That'll be the uh, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Ah, cardiomyopathies. We don't see those very often in the emergency department, but I guess they do exist. Definitely one of those things that's slightly terrifying. Right, moving on. Um, the next section of the meeting that we're going to cover was then presented by our colleague, uh, Helen Bates, who's one of our pediatric emergency physicians. So straight off the bat, um, another colleague, Rachel Harrison, another pediatric emergency physician of ours, then talked about anaphylaxis, a very, very common presentation to our emergency departments that is sometimes mismanaged. And this was highlighted in this case. Thanks, Gareth. Well, Let's talk about the diagnostic criteria of anaphylaxis. The Resus Council and NICE summarise very clearly how to diagnose anaphylaxis and how to treat it. The key diagnostic criteria is that the patient has a sudden onset of rapid progressive symptoms. There will be features of airway, breathing and or circulatory compromise and there are often skin and mucosal changes. We should not forget that Patients will often have GI symptoms as well because of the mucosal edema that happens. So how do we treat anaphylaxis, Gareth? Great question. Um, historically, um, there's been lots of treatments for anaphylaxis. For example, adrenaline, steroids, antihistamines. But more recently, it's been realized that there's a lot of hesitancy amongst clinical staff to administer IM adrenaline appropriately. And then substitute their clinical decisions with things like giving steroids or antihistamines, which are, seem to be uh, easier to use. However, that has led to mismanagement. So the bottom line is, as, as Lee says, if there's any airway, breathing or circulatory compromise in these patients, then they must get an appropriate dose of IM adrenaline, which is always going to be uh, dosed with the one in 1000 as per the algorithm. That's right, Gareth. It's adrenaline, adrenaline, adrenaline. Now, these patients are potentially critically unwell. They need to be flagged to a senior emergency physician, and ideally they will be managed in the resuscitation room, although adrenaline can be given wherever the patient is in the department as soon as we suspect anaphylaxis. For our senior emergency physicians, so the middle grades and the epics, we signpost you to the AMAX4 algorithm, which is a new algorithm that's been devised to help manage the patients with refractory anaphylaxis, which is the most critical emergency associated with this condition. Gareth, how do we diagnose refractory anaphylaxis? Again, great question. So this is when you've got 
obviously anaphylaxis that you're managing in the resuscitation room, as Lee says. You've given one dose of adrenaline. You've waited five minutes. You've given another dose of IM adrenaline and you're still getting no response. So you've given two appropriate doses of IM adrenaline and you're getting no response. Then we're going to call it refractory anaphylaxis. And what are we going to do about that, Lee? Then, Gareth, we are going to start an, an, an adrenaline infusion as outlined in the latest Resuscitation Council guidelines from 2021. So, Gareth, I think we've covered a lot there talking about anaphylaxis. Shall we just quickly summarise that for everyone? Anaphylaxis is diagnosed when a patient has been exposed to a potential allergen, has a rapid onset of symptoms that are progressing quickly, airway, breathing or circulatory compromise, often associated with mucosal edema affecting the skin and or the GI tract. The treatment is adrenaline, adrenaline, adrenaline. And if a patient has not responded to two doses of IM adrenaline, this is refractory anaphylaxis. This is a critical care emergency. The patient must be managed in the resus room and should be started on an adrenaline infusion. We would recommend that you read the 2021 Resus Council guidelines on anaphylaxis. Absolutely. But I would butt in there and say it's not adrenaline, adrenaline, adrenalinely. It's more like adrenaline, adrenaline, lots of adrenaline. Good point, Gareth. So just to wrap up the paediatric section that was covered really well by our colleague Helen Bates, a few really great themes um, highlighted. What were they, Lee? Thanks, Gareth. Uh, well, it's great to see that uh, two of the policies that HHFT have been involved in developing the SNAP protocol uh, for the management of patients presenting with paracetamol overdose and the paediatric rapid tranquilization protocol have now been signed off by the regional peer group and they are available on the peer website. And we would recommend that you go and have a look at those peer policies, which cover a whole range of paediatric conditions. So there were a few uh, messages um, from Helen Bates, one being um, the use of biofires. Now, these are swaps that we can do on the kids that will test for multiple different viruses. Um, but unfortunately, we it was highlighted that we were doing quite a lot last year um, and they don't need to be done by us. In fact, um, Helen went on to tell us that realistically, they should only be um, ordered um, by a paediatric doctor. Okay, thanks. That's great to hear, Gareth. And finally, we'll wrap up with the latest update from the safeguarding team. So the latest TikTok craze, and if you don't know, TikTok is uh, a social media. Is that part of the clock? TikTok, TikTok, yeah, TikTok. It's some social media thing uh, whereby people can record videos and publish them. A bit like, I think it's a bit like Facebook, Gareth, but the kids don't seem to know about Facebook these days. Well, Facebook is clearly what we grew up with social media, but however, apparently Facebook isn't cool anymore. Well, anyhow, uh, it seems that on TikTok, uh, some children uh, have been being encouraged to perform aerosol burns and record them on TikTok. And sadly, there have been some presentations of such patients to our departments. So please be aware that this is a thing doing the rounds on social media that young people may access. And if you see any children presenting with this kind of stuff, then please make sure that you follow the standard safeguarding processes and report these incidents. Absolutely. The key message there. 
Well, that brings us to the end of our first episode of ED GovCast. Thanks for bearing with us. This is our first taste of podcasting, so I hope that you've enjoyed it. Well, I've enjoyed spending the morning with you, Gareth. Um, so thanks very much. You make good coffee, by the way. Cheers. We mentioned a few guidelines that we think it would be worth people looking at, and we're going to post those in the Teams channel, uh, which will be like our show notes for the moment. Uh, But just to remind you, that was the anaphylaxis guidelines from the Resus Council. If you're a senior emergency physician, the AMAX4 algorithm, the NICE Lyme disease algorithm. And don't forget to look at the peer guidelines for some excellent regional guidelines on pediatric conditions. And finally, don't forget to to keep abreast of the HHFT safeguarding protocols. Perfect. So thank you very much for listening. We will release another episode next month. In the meantime, please feel free to feedback any comments or suggestions via the usual ways. So email, Teams, WhatsApp, etc. So thank you for listening to ED GovCast.